Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. This is uh, a little bit early. Do I sound boomy? You sound you sound far away. I sound far away. Huh. You are far away. You're in California. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to break the fourth wall, as they say. Yeah. What happened? Did you get a new microphone? Um. I, no. 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 Same. Same microphone. I think my. Um. I think for one thing, my hearing. Uh. I'm. I'm getting into that like uh, Pete Townsend. Bob Mould thing. Where oh, I, I, you got a little tinnitus. No, no, thank God. Knock on wood, I don't. But I've got uh, uh, the range of, of what I can hear is does not include the human voice anymore. Oh, I see. I think it was so, Pete Townsend. It might have been Pete Townsend that talked about that, that. That's the thing is when you stand in front of a high watt for, well, many high watts for that many years, it's, mm. it's ironic that the range, well, as you know, I'm not an audiologist. Mm. But well. the range, well, thank you. I do what I can. <laughs> what, uh, the range that gets knocked out is very close to the range of, uh, a human voice. Yeah. I find even more specifically <clears throat> the range that gets knocked out for me is the range of the female human voice. Yeah. It's hard to hear women. I, I was, yeah. I didn't want to say anything, but especially, uh, when you're alone with them. Yeah. Right. Or they mm-hmm. have some. Uh, things they want to talk about. Yeah, and then the matter they get, the harder it is to hear them. Yeah, that was yeah, Pete, Town- like, Pete Townsend have, said that. <laughs> I have a couple of things that I'd like to talk to you about. It's like what? Huh? Ah? Eh? Do you have? T- do you have t- I feel like I've asked you this. You don't? Have, do, you, do you have tinnitus? You know, after years and years of standing in front of not a high watt, but uh, but other very loud amps, I went to a bachelor party. A couple of years ago, did I tell you this story? Oh, this to- is the yeah. That's right. Of course you do. You shot the gun. The guy shot or, the gun with your thing off. Yeah, the guy shot the gun, and I had my headphones off, and it, and it was like uh, I, I've had uh, I've had a ringing in my ear ever since. Oh, I forgot. That's isn't that now again? That's an irony inside the irony. Now, now the, the kind of the kind of hearing loss you get from a gun. How does that relate to women? Has it changed anything about how you understand? Uh, the uh the whatever the better gender whatever they call it, it it definitely uh, it definitely inhibits my ability to hear them complain about gun violence you know like huh. when i cuz as i'm sitting around as i'm sitting around cleaning my own guns and they're like you shouldn't have guns in the house you have a small child i'm like i don't ah, i can't hear you stop mumbling <laughs> yeah. uh, my dad my dad uh had bad hearing because of all those years he claimed uh, flying airplanes, making the world safe for democracy. Just him and his forty-five. Just him and his forty-five, and so he didn't have. He had bad hearing. He had he had uh, ear uh, earphone. What are those things called? Um, hearing aids. But he also. Yeah, he remember, your memory goes a little bit after a gunshot too. <laughs> he couldn't hear my sister. He couldn't hear my mom. Um, he heard me fine. But then I have I have a voice like a French horn. So, you, get, you gotta put your fist in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's one of the hardest. <laughs> that's one of the hardest instruments to play. Did you know that French horn? You know, it's the. In my opinion, the French horn is the secret weapon of pop music. If you put a French horn on a song, big oh hit. yeah, I, I think it was John Entwistle. Uh, if memory serves, was one of the first. Probably John Whistle, John, Ent- John Entwistle, and uh, you have to guess George Martin had a lot to do with that. John reading- Entwistle could actually just bust out a French horn and play it. Are you reading a, a Who book right now or something? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, Roger Daltrey was uh, a short man. 
He was. I've met Roger Daltrey. <laughs> I think we're, we finally reached the point where we're repeating our stories. <laughs> <laughs> so you came back from Europe, and you had trouble with the zipper on your bag. Mm-hmm. And uh, your father... Uh, so, mm, you know what? It's a joke, but it is funny. I think I do... I, I, I'm imagining like a graph of, of the various Hertzes or whatever. And I do think it is the higher end of the human voice that I have the most trouble with. I'm not saying that's just ladies. It could be whiny people. I sound like a broken clarinet. I've actually, I've actually seen a graph of my hearing. Uh, I went to an audiologist and they did a long hearing test on me. And in my right ear, there is a, there is a dramatic little spike, a downward spike right about the, Right about at the at where a, a female voice is is pitch wise, so and you say there's no God, <laughs> but at the same time, I also happen to have to deal with a little, you know, a little cadre of uh, women in my own personal life who are mumblers. Oh who are, no, and, who are mumblers and uh, not just mumblers, but also like, um, like. Uh, like sentence pullers, you know, they hmm. kind of, they, they like, they like kill the end of their sentences in order to draw you into their, draw, draw you into appear, appearing to be more interested in. Tell in what, what an inhuman thing to do to you in at yeah. least two ways. First of all, you're having trouble hearing whatever they're saying to begin with. Thank you. Exactly. But, but then as a thinker, as a thinker and somebody who, who demands uh, satisfaction as well as completion, mm, mm-hmm. you're going to want to know what, 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 what was that? What was that? I just yeah. I, I almost heard something. What was that? I don't like mumbling and trailing. Yeah, trailing, trailing is a it's a it's a um, I, I I think of it as like a boardroom technique. It's a it's like a it's the it's the the, the guy that speaks incredibly quietly in order to uh, to dominate people. Oh yeah, that they say that if you want to make people listen, you should speak quietly. Oh, it's the word. I mean, uh, taken to to a point, I agree. But 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 taken to the extreme, where you're like, uh, oh, you're did, that's like that's like, like one of those. Oh, you're killing uh, me now. That's like one of those like discount Dale Carnegie techniques. You know, like some douchebag hears that, and I've met a lot of extremely uninteresting people who speak quietly because they think it makes them interesting. Now, as somebody who speaks speaks fairly, I, I, I'm learning. I speak very loudly. That it's. Uh, I'm not saying that makes me I- interesting, uh, uh, but I've been you around. Are interesting, though. I, I, you know, a lot of people I've met who consider themselves futurists speak very quietly. Oh, right, because they are. They don't. Uh, they're they're presuming that other people are going to go into the future, develop some technology to come back into the past to be able to hear what they're saying. You know, that's, it could be. It could be. Time travel is a very complicated issue. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think, let, though... Let's not talk about time travel. Is that, does that trouble you, time travel? No, but ever since I saw Looper, now I realize that when anybody starts talking about time travel, the answer is, let's not talk about time travel. Oh, I heard about that. That's, that's, that's a funny way to treat it. Well, I just read <clears throat> about uh, 600 pages of a comic that was uh, a long comic arc that was about time travel. And my daughter and I have been reading a, uh, a comic book that ha- involves time travel, and it always makes my head hurt. Paradoxes upon paradoxes. Yeah. Upon and, paradoxes. And then, of course, the worst part is then there's somebody who can explain it, and I just don't want them to explain it. I'm, I'm, uh, there never is, because it's, uh, because you, it's, it's just the, the infinite uh, universes problem. Where that's, it's like, the, that's a big problem at Marvel right now. There's just too many universes. Too many universes. There yeah. really are too many universes at Marvel and, or whatever. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> <clears throat> I've got my bell here. I'm touching it, but I'm not dinging it. 
Uh, marble. That's good. Uh, That's pretty good. I'm, uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to let my sentences trail off now. <laughs> it's, it's early. It's, it it's is part early. Of- I had, according to, I have a, a little dingus on my phone that I used to tell me how well I slept. Yeah. And according to my dingus, it uh, it's, it's long story short, you put it on your bed and it, and it kind of observes how often you move while you slept which tracks to how deeply you're sleeping. And uh, it calculates based on how long you slept and how often you were deeply or not deeply asleep. It tells you how high quality your sleep was. Does it give you a single number? Well, yeah, it's got like an index number. It gives you a clout score of how well you slept. It gives me a clout. I got a clout of 96 last night, which is the, I'm usually in the 60s. So I really, I killed it last night. How high five. Thank you. I went to bed early and my wife let me sleep in a little bit. Oh, you know what happened? I came back from our, uh, our, uh, our show and I, I got a stress bump. So I'm, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. Where is it? Oh, it's you know, it's actually one of my least favorites. It's the upper right. Upper right lip. Yeah. And uh, this morning, I thought I might have one on my nose, but then I realized those don't really exist. Uh, I would. I, I, I don't agree. <laughs> I think that stress bumps on the nose are a major, we major... Should, we've probably covered that enough. That's where stress bumps want to be, is on the nose. But here's the, here's the human side of stress bumps. Um, we're not just talking about, you know, having getting kissed by Uncle Licky and bad girls, but it really does when you've... It's, it's, again, this, this is the irony show. It is yeah. very ironic that when you, when you really, uh, you don't get enough sleep and yeah. you're stressed out and you're pushing too hard, <clears throat> it's, if I do that for more than a couple days, mainly the sleep part, you know, but also maybe the drinking and staying out, but really it's the sleep. Yeah. If I do that for more than a couple days, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to get a stress bump. Yeah. Especially when I travel. Cause I think my, my immune system is, you know, exposed. Has it ever occurred to you to grow a beard? Y- yes. Why don't you do it? Well, it's like it, having it occur to me to be nine feet tall. Like, I'm just not sure it's in my wheelhouse. <laughs> you know my theory on beards, that God gives men the beards that those men deserve. Oh, brother, does that ever make sense? <laughs> I hate you know, to like, admit it, but it does. Yeah, you wear the beard that you, you wear the beard that you have, not the beard that you want. That was Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. That's, okay. that's a really good point. And so those guys... Like, I remember there were guys in college who really wanted to grow a beard. And yeah. let's, let's be honest. The reason a lot of guys grow a goatee is because that's the only place that the hairs will go. Right. It's kind of cheating. It, it, you know what I mean? It's like if you really tried to grow an actual beard, you know, but what I'm remembering is for, this was true for me, but it's really true for the guys who stuck with it and were willing to look stupid for a year. Yeah. Is if you wait long enough, you can almost get a beard. And I think it's true for ladies, too. If you wait long enough, you'll eventually get a beard. Well, in, when I was in college, my problem is that I had, <clears throat> I had one of those spin doctors, Lane Staley beards. Is that the guy, used to that's say, the guy with the hat? The, the well, Lane, St- Lane Staley was the singer of, um, of, uh, that, that band that I'm now. Spin doctors? No, Lane Staley was the Seattle grunge rock, uh, Alex, Alice in Chains. Thank you. Alice in Chains. Hey, singer. that was a guess. <laughs> good job. Good job. And, uh, and the spin doctors were that other guy and okay. they both had, I was just worried that you might know the name of the singer from the spin doctors. No, it's not a big no. deal, <laughs> but they both had that, that beard, which was, uh, they had a lot of hair on their, on their, on the underside of their chin, you know, like the, they had a big, they had a big face beard, mm-hmm. but really no mustache. They couldn't grow a mustache. And this was my problem in college. I would I, I went a year without shaving, and I had an enormous beard, but my mustache was uh, like the wispy down on a child's bottom, mm. and it was infuriating to me because I wanted, you know, I wanted a Zorba the Greek beard, right? And I had this 
this beard that I, I just, I would say, I would sit and stare in the mirror and I would, I would ask myself like, if you put mascara in your mustache, do you think people would notice? Mm-hmm. If you, if you bought one of those boxes at the drugstore of dark hair coloring and put it in your, in your mustache. You but, think it, people, but the texture's not right either, right? It's yeah. The, everything about it was wrong. It was, there was no, I could have handed it. I could have drawn it on. I could have drawn a mustache in with, with pen. Nothing was going to look right. And I, uh, and it, it, it taunted me, my own beard, it taunted me until I was at least 30 years old when I finally felt like, okay, you know, my mustache has finally caught up to the rest of the, to the rest of what's going on. But I realized in looking back that that is a kind of beard. That is what I like to call the young warrior beard, hmm. which is to say that in all those old sort of Greek, uh, like, bas-relief carvings of uh, warriors lined up. I'm thinking up. like a Phoenician. Yeah, sort of against Sparta, right, or a Phoenician. You know, the young warriors all have a lot of lot of neck beard, <laughs> for lack of a better term, and not a ton of mustache. Mm-hmm. And the mustache is how you... That's cause, maybe because the soldiers are young. They are young, precisely. And the first part of your beard that grows is around your jaw. But in, in any case, the... Uh, uh, my conclusion was that because as I talk to people, I go around the world, as you know, mm-hmm. and people come up to me and they want to talk about beards because I have one, and and beards are a source. It's, of, it's kind of like having a Harley or a uh, or a Great Dane. Yeah, exactly. You, you really like, you shouldn't you shouldn't have it unless you want to talk about it. Yeah, a, a utility kilt. A Great Dane of a people beard. who have utility kilts happen. The Venn diagram is very heavily. If you have there's people with utility kilts and people who like to talk about utility kilts, and the Venn diagram is a it's perfect, a it's a perfect circle. Yeah, yeah. I've Nobody never wants to talk about a utility kilt that doesn't wear one. Yeah, that's ex- that isn't excited to tell you all about it, but but also excited to tell you about it with a certain amount of smugness. You think so? You know, I get more of a brony. I get a brony vibe from a lot of them. They want to tell me about the benefits, the Fs and Bs. Well, the benefits, but there's a little bit of a there's a haughty aspect to someone with a utility kilt where it's mm-hmm. like either uh, you know like <clears throat> either you know what this is and you're and you're asking me about it because you're teasing me. Oh, right. Or you don't know what this is, in which case. You're clearly not a member of the... It was like having a tattoo on your arm in runes, Mm. where you'd go, oh, yes, I see you've recognized that these are runes, but you probably don't know what it says. Right. It says Zoso. Where's the beef? (laughs) Uh, But but I've realized that that almost every guy, when you really give him a a safe place to talk, he's going to express a list of reservations about his own beard. He's going to (laughs) say... It's patchy over here. He, he, may not, he may not have ever mentally made that list, but when pressed, yeah. I, you, well, it isn't even so... pressed. It's just like you give them a safe place. You're like, oh, you're trying to grow a beard. Oh, I like your beard. Oh, it's like, 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 like telling the, the Scoutmaster story. You go right. somewhere, it's okay to have that conversation here. Yeah. And then they're like, it wow, all comes out. All actually, comes pouring out. You see here where the mustache doesn't connect to the beard. Or, uh, over oh, my God. Here, that's mine. This, that's where I get like touched. A, that's mine. There's right a there. patch over here that doesn't yes. fill in or this or that. And everybody has these these really small things about their beard that to them they have amplified to be these like these disgusting, ludicrous holes in their beard that 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 basically preclude them being able to wear one. It's kind of a, like a hair suit anorexia. 
Yeah, it is a body dysmorphia. Dysmorphia. Of, I used that word yesterday to talk yeah. about George Lucas. That's a great word. Of hair. George Lucas has has this sense that he has a slim neck. Oh, this, God. This, this slim, He's got like, neck. his beard's like a, like a, he has a bad beard toupee. Because he thinks, I think he honestly thinks that helps his dewlap. Well, it's the it's the Andrew Dice Clay problem, where Andrew Dice Clay just kept making his sideburns sharper and sharper to accentuate a jawline that was that was coated in a in a uh, enveloping parka of fat. <laughs> <laughs> but, but George, George I think Lucas, the, I always assumed the pointy sideburns were some kind of like. I want to come back to this whole idea because I think there might be something nearly phrenology like about mm. what we learn from somebody's beard that they can or can't grow. But mm-hmm. I thought date rape caused pointy uh, sideburns. Oh no, I think pointy sideburns uh, it, certainly in a, in anybody that's over like <clears throat> thirty five is just like the just like the George Lucas thing. He is trying to architect some shape. Oh, for like a his... forced perspective almost. Right. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. This is where my face ends and my neck begins. I think people right get that. Right where the beard is. They get that. People get this so backward. And and I, I remember, like, for example, uh, like a lot of times in, in high school, like when girls are learning how to use makeup, they use it like backwards mm. where they'll go. They don't, they, they think it's all about um, building up rather than contrasting. And so mm. when I, when we were in high school, it was really popular. There's this blue eye makeup it's called Cole. Like K O H L, and a lot of girls go, "Oh, it brings out my blue eyes," and it's like, "Well, no, it looks it makes you look like a, a day after hooker. Like it just makes it just makes you look super weird. You're not contrasting that, right? Mm. It's like people, uh, you know what I mean? Like people, like George Lucas. I think he doesn't realize that what he's really doing is saying, "Hey, look, I got a doolap down here." It's not. Now, in some men, some men, he's pointing at it rather than than he's creating a you are here sign for his doolap. Yeah, I feel like if George Lucas just let his beard grow down over his bullfrog neck, but he has no chin. That's the other problem. Is he has no chin, right? But that is that is one of the the like the top four reasons guys grow a beard to look like they have a chin. Yeah, did you ever see a picture of Jerry Garcia without his beard? No, no, his, his face. It goes looks like his, his mouth's falling off. It goes, face goes from his nose to his Adam's apple. There's nothing in between. It's just that's, like that's a, a goddamn shame. But well, it isn't because he discovered that if you grow a big beard, you look like Jerry Garcia, one of the most iconic yeah. rock faces of all time. If you say so. So there, are, and I've known a lot of guys that had no chin that grew a beard and they were handsome guys. They, so yes, you're absolutely right. You're you know what? You're absolutely right. I I, I have a good friend that that lacks a chin and has a very uh, retreating hairline. Mm-hmm. And he 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 does he does well with both, you know. He's but, not he's not doing that truly farcical kind of uh, comb forward. Like it's pretty believable. Oh, he's got a little hairdo. You're saying? Well, you remember when George to... Clooney made the Caesar thing? Yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of like okay. Mm-hmm. Well, thank God. Like we said this on five shows, but I, thank God you can shave your head today. Yeah, like, yeah. I think that is that is the greatest. That is like the gay rights of hair. It is so great that it's okay now. To say, you know what? I shaved my head. Maybe I'm bald. Maybe I'm not. But I'm probably bald. But I'm. I look really cool now. Well, I saw a we guy the kids. other day, not not in person, but I saw it on the internet where he he was bald, and he shaved his head and then had stubble tattooed on his head in the in the shape of where where a full head of hair would be growing. Mm. And he he uh, he really was, how, he was how, pulling how it look, off. How to look, John? He was, he was pulling it off. Uh-huh. I, it looked, <laughs> he looked uh, he looked pretty tough. Huh. Yeah, he did. But so you're saying your friend with the comb forward yeah. has created... He also has a, uh, what, what you could unkindly call a weak chin. Mm. But he looks great. You don't think he's a hideous freak or anything like that. Right. 
But but you know you're onto something extremely interesting here, and and we talked about phrenology before. Uh, there's some other things we've talked about. Where uh, oh shoot, what was the other one? But where you can tell a lot about a person by by yeah. by, uh, by the things they say and do. I, well, I don't want to go nuts. <laughs> But but uh, you know oh, what was it? It was uh, was it uh, was it your teeth? I forget what it was. But it was one of you. You uh, were getting your very clothes, close. Your job. Your job. Your you like. lack of security. Uh-huh. Uh, understanding, saving for the future. But my feeling about a beard mm-hmm. is that uh, one of the things that as a, as a student of beards for many years, if you if you open up a fashion magazine. Uh, men's fashion magazine. All the models now have beards. Hmm. And a lot of those beards are very patchy. Like, that's kind of a look, if not the look. You mean the kind of like young guy, puby, patchy? Yeah. Young guy, puby, patchy model beard. Is they, a call it, they call it the PDX. The P- <laughs> Isn't that kind of a Portland thing before you get the giant beard? You know, because really, your, if you're 25 and you're playing acoustic guitar and being earnest, you got to have a beard, right? That's yeah. the thing. Patchy puby beard. So you've got the you've got the the sideburns, the mustache, the chin, the soul patch, and the cheeks, and none of them actually really connect to each other. It's like little archipelagos. And this is this is this is in some ways an incredibly fashionable way to wear your beard, and also it is uh, like like blue eyeshadow, which. Blue eyeshadow is meant to mimic the closeness of the blood vessels to the skin that a young girl has, hmm. right? That's so young people. You know their skin is still translucent, and you see the you see the blue of their oxygen deprived blood right <laughs> under their skin, and that conveys to us unconsciously youth and vitality. I did not know that. So a little blue eyeshadow is what old older people use to mimic this like. This uh, this youthfulness, and the same is true with the patchy beard. So my contention is that older gentlemen, or rather, I'm not calling you old, but mm. rather to say, men who have attained their their agency, um, if you are lucky enough to have a youthful patchy beard, I would wear it with pride, hmm. because those of us who have a beard that goes basically from underneath our eyes to Somewhere in uh, Chile, which is where my beard ends, Chile. <laughs> We—I don't have the option. I would have to—I <clears throat> would have to go in with two pairs of, of scissors and a, and some toenail clippers and a, you know, and a bottle of bleach to make my beard look patchy. I see. What, I I I, th- I think I understand. It looks like a beaver pelt. My beard, <laughs> ladies. <laughs> I um, oh, I love these gentle bells. <laughs> oh, you're just reaching out. You're just you're just touching. You're just like. Well, it's like I, I was appreciating at our at our show how, how good your microphone skills are, and I think that's important. You ever watch that Feist when that Feist sings? That lady's got mic skills. She, she, <laughs> she can does. sing she loud a, or quiet. She uses a couple of different mics too. She's song. amazing, but I mean, I want I want to get that way with the bell. I don't care if I, I I can't sing. It doesn't matter. I just like the idea of this bell being something where I have a little bit of subtlety. I like that. Yeah. Well, and and we we perfected at our show the other day the, <laughs> the c- clammed bell. Oh. <laughs> Conk. 
I like the idea, though, of, of – and this – I don't know why this is so interesting to me, but, you know, in our post-Age of Reason age, uh, you know, we would never look at something like phrenology and go – I guess phrenology was still around until the early, early 20th century. But the idea well, that there's these things about you – you know what? It was – we were talking about stress bumps. We were talking about that, like, this says something about you, like, morally in this, oh, like, medieval sense. Right. And because, uh, you know – There's no place you can go where a stress bump is going to be accepted. No. If you go down to the local firehouse, yeah, wine tastings, they're, they're going to shun you. Kissing you booths. Go, even if you, if even if you go under the embarcadero, <laughs> where people are like burning trash in a garbage pail, <laughs> and you're like, "Hello, my friends." They won't share. They won't share their hooch. Like, ugh. <laughs> but you know, the idea that it's funny because I have a face. I have a. Uh, and when I shave and get a haircut, I have a I have a pretty classic like guy face. I got a big I got a big chin. I got a, I got a, I got a jaw. I do have beady eyes, which I'm not You're crazy about. You're a handsome about. guy. This is the thing about. <clears throat> Thank you. you. Yeah, you have a handsomeness. Well, I don't know about that, but but it, but it's funny how like you know there's all kinds of this has happened for years and years and years. You show people pictures of people and like say, do you trust them? You know, oh, would you trust oh. this person and, and so forth? And uh, and I like the idea though of the beard you deserve. Because the beard you deserve, if you think about it, is going on the face you got, which That's is, right. in some sense, the, the face that you deserve. That's right. right? Exactly right. So you smoke the- those cigarettes, and you start getting a little wrinkly, right? You, uh, I don't know, get a, get a German lady to choke you, and you get petechial hemorrhaging in your eyes. You know, everything that you've done is going to have some kind of an impact on how your face looks. Well, and I think this, is, uh, this goes to the dysmorphia of, of the, that we all have, I think, from... We spend a lot more time looking at other people's faces than we do our own. Mm-hmm. And so we develop this kind of picture of ourselves. Uh, you, you and I know a guy, I've, I've mentioned this before, who is a, who is a man with, a, with very distinctive looks, but who I've always contended in his mind's eye pictures himself looking like a young Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, or Morrissey, because these were, <laughs> these were faces that he, he fixated on. And then uh, what, what that caused in him was every time he caught a glimpse of himself in, uh, uh, in the reflection of a storefront, uh, right. he would be newly horrified, horrified for the Ugh. first time uh, each time. Like that, brutal, brutal cognitive dissonance. Yeah, that he realized as he's walking down the street, he's like, I am looking like Johnny Depp. And then he looks at himself and he goes, ah! And, and, it, and it was a, it reinforced, it was a constant, like, reinforcing trauma that gave him this kind of schism in his mind about what what he looked like he he thought he was more hideous than he was in other words and and Be- none of the solutions to that are are easy or or happy because yeah. th- what do you do i mean there's the john roderick approach of well i'm just gonna keep staring in this goddamn mirror until i don't care what i look like I'm guessing. <laughs> or you could say, maybe, I mean, on the other end, you could be a little sophisticated and say, well, maybe I have to just accept that I don't look like Johnny Depp. Or you could just quit catching yourself in mirrors. Mm. Well, but the problem is we all want to, <clears throat> I think we all want to imagine that we are good looking enough, you know, for, for, for whatever our circumstances are. And hmm. it's the rare person it's it's the rare person that doesn't think they are almost good looking enough. You know what I mean? Like, oh no, yeah, it, it's very rare that people think like I am truly hideous from top to bottom. But but we're, we're we always find ourselves wanting just that that extra little push over the over the hump where we would be good looking enough that you know to to pass. 
And the reality is uh, we're all good. I mean, it's, this, is the, this is the classic thing that you hear from people all the time when they get to be in their 30s and 40s, and they, they look back at their youth, and they say, I thought I was so disgusting when I was 18, and now I look at every 18-year-old, and they're all beautiful. Yeah. Like, it's just, in, being 18 is just, it's, you're intrinsically beautiful. You had a really good, you had a good toot about that a few weeks ago that, that, that I liked a lot. I don't know if it's about how you look or weight or something like that, but it, it's absolutely true. And it's why, it's one reason teenagers are so insufferable. You know, it's like, yeah. you, you know, the age, you know, uh, youth being uh, wasted on the young kind of thing. But yeah. you're, but, but you're absolutely right. And, cause, and we're obsessing over a different thing at that point. Right. All we're, all well, we're seeing is our, all we're seeing is our deficits, which are in retrospect should be fairly minor when you don't see that you have things like energy. Right. And, and you haven't been broken yet. Right. Well, and I and I feel like the same is true of of being forty years old. I mean, at forty years old, you can, as you say, study the study the way a person has lived by seeing their cigarette lines and their <laughs> and the you know the way that their evil has manifested itself on their face, uh, and their gnarled knuckles, and uh, in my in my case, the fact that <laughs> their Jewy oh, wallet. <laughs> <laughs> all the all the teeth that they got knocked out when they were a young person fighting in bars um start all that starts to come home to roost but in fact being being 40 i mean that is the dare i say it the prime of life mm. and um when you look when you look at a picture when you, when you when you read an obituary of somebody or you you're reading their autobiography the picture of them at 40 years old is the picture of them yeah you know, like there's there there are the pictures of them when they were young and the pictures of them when they were old. But the picture of them that, rep, you know, how they are, who they were it, is always, you know, when they were 40 or 50. I, th- I think you're right. I was I was reading uh, 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 my knowledge of Leonard Cohen is uh, really spotty. So I was learning a little bit about Leonard Cohen last night and I was looking the pictures of him when he's young are really weird looking. Yeah, it seems so different from the pictures of like what I th- and now he looks old now like he's an old guy now. But you're right, the pictures of him like in the like the mid to late seventies or whatever or like like that's what he looks like. Yeah, that's him, Paul Simon. You know, well actually, Paul Simon's always looked weird. There's never been a time Paul Paul Simon didn't look a little weird. Paul Simon is a little strange, isn't he? Yeah, he's um he's yeah. I mean, I, I kind of most admire the bridge over troubled water. Let's just let this hair go crazy. Part, but isn't it always weird when somebody's? I'm not to make it all about baldness. It always seems weird to me when somebody's bald for a while, and then they stop being bald. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there's that time where you're like, okay, I'm a guy who's going bald, and I'm gonna try a couple tricks, and then suddenly, like, you got hair. But like, there's well, lots, of, there's lots of pictures of Paul Simon like on Saturday Night Live where he had like no hair, no hair, right? And then suddenly he's got hair. Now he's well, doing I, he's doing a pretty pretty profound comb over comb, comb forward in a lot of those, I think. You look at you look at uh, Elton John. I was thinking about this the other day. I mm-hmm. saw a picture of Elton John in a in a magazine and you know Elton John's Elton John is at an age now where his face is really starting to go and and I was looking at this picture of him and I was like oh he is starting to look like Queen Elizabeth <laughs> you know there's a certain kind there's a certain sort of man that as he gets older he just starts to look like a matron you know or he's starting to look like the queen mother even Ex- except that he has this uh, he has this hair. He has a little furry friend up there. He has this hair that's like the the sort of the wispy, like red hair that uh, that a you know an, a young Irish lad would have. And so I'm looking at this picture and I'm erasing the hair in my mind. 
and realizing what Elton John actually looks like. <laughs> looks like Judy Dench. <laughs> he, 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 he does look like Judy Dench. He looks like a bald Judy Dench. And it, he's a, he would be a remarkably different looking person if he had just let himself go bald. Um, and I think maybe less of a pop star, you know, uh, he, his, we have all accepted his hair for the most part. And it, it is, it's camouflaging a multitude of sins. You know, the, do you know the poker player, Daniel Negrano? Mm-mm. I think you, he, I think, I think you might've mentioned him. Yeah. He's a Canadian poker player. I, I for a long time, I went, when, uh, before I eliminated cable TV from my life, I used to watch hours and hours of televised poker. I don't know why. I honestly don't know why, but I would watch it for hours. And of all the, and most poker players, I have to say, uh, when you watch them on TV for very long, you realize like these are terrible people. These are people. <laughs> these are people who uh, would be if they were not millionaires from this game, they would be sleeping on a on a twin size mattress with no sheets, and they would be just uh, just pulling a blanket of dander over them to keep. <laughs> <laughs> the winter chill off but now they're millionaires and they're, they're they haven't done anything different i'm sure sh- I'm, I'm sure that that a lot of these poker guys they have w- they have one or two changes of underwear like they're just reprehensible <laughs> but daniel negrano is this guy from canada who is kind of it, it, he is he he wears his hair he's a balding guy but he wears his hair pushed forward like a uh, in this greek uh, greek style oh dear and uh, over the years, as he's as he's gotten more famous and has made more money, I've watched him go from. <laughs> originally, he would just comb his hair straight forward and then cut it off at his eyebrows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he's he has developed a style because he's obviously paying people to to style his hair now. He, but anyway, he's my favorite. Poker. This is this looks very. This is one of those things that like a uh, like a beautiful pastry that was probably very complicated given what the results look like. Mm. This looks like a lot of work when because it's if if I'm looking at what you're talking about he he's obviously a bald man who's doing things with his hair let's start there and he's got uh, it's kind of wispy but it's kind of like got a fun youthful tousled look exactly fun and youthful it's kind my, of my, my my wife calls this the hipster come forward yep we have a mutual friend that has one of these and yeah, uh, it's a look it's a look yeah and I and I get the fa- I get the sense also that he spends a lot of time in Montreal if mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying. Oh, so hmm. you're going to get a lot of you, your hair is going to Montreal is a place like well let's just start with France. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things you can do in France that you can't do anywhere else in the world. Listen to jazz. Well, yeah, and be a guy, be a forty year old guy who dresses like a uh, uh, like a what am I trying to say? Like um, a butt plug. <laughs> <laughs> And if you take that, if you take that and you translate it to Canada yeah. and you put it through the Canadian filter where everybody in Canada looks like they are an extra from an early episode of 21 Jump Street, <laughs> Montreal is the place, I think, in North America. where I all, Montreal is more French than France. They're like hyper French, aren't they? They, they, uh, they're so, they're, well... Hmm. They're like ang- aren't they? They're, they're, they're just they're they're, per- they're perma angry and they're mad. They're mad at everybody, including themselves. Yeah, that Montreal. Mo- that Montreal is mad. There are places in in Quebec and even northern Ontario where they speak French, where they're much madder than in Montreal. They're mad at Montreal for not being true enough. Wow! Wow! In, in the in the in the francophone world, I think there is a sense of as you move away from Paris. 
people say people get madder and madder about about how untrue you are and and quebec city is mad at montreal quebec city feels like montreal abandoned them but there are places in northern ontario which is not so they're outside of quebec but they are french speaking towns and they're just so mad they're mad at they're mad at everybody because they've um what de- what's the word i'm looking for uh They've watered down the language and culture by allowing anything in that's not super French. No, I think it's more that they feel that they were that they were uh, in Canada. The French feel that they were abandoned by France to the uncertain fate of first England and then Canada. And so, you know, the 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 motto of Quebec is "Je me souviens." Uh, I I will not forget, or I rem- I I will remember. I guess it I is. I think but- it translates roughly as "Oh, I'll remember." Yeah, right. And 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 really, really, I feel like it translates as "We will never forget how you fucked us." And it just moves. You know, they're they're mad at Canada because they don't feel part of Canada. They're super mad at America because we are just the worst. But they're also mad at France because France abandoned them, and they're mm. mad at the they're mad at the people down the block who have English signs out in front of their stores. Let alone the entire world that's oh, causing then, them all this problem. Oh, please, the world. Huh. Sacra so, blue. <laughs> so anyway, the, but, 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 uh, but part of that, I think the two places in North America where you're going to find the worst men's fashion, or not worst, but, but opportunities for men to dress in ways, like for instance with hyper-distressed jeans that are then also bedazzled. Mm. You're, yeah. you're going to find that in Mexico City, and you're yeah, find you that once, in you once stipulated that the Canada is the uh, is like the pilot for Twenty One Jump Street. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, where the <clears throat> where the fashions are are what a Hollywood set designer in the '80s imagined gangbangers <laughs> uh, wore. You know, <laughs> like people are like, oh yeah, this is edgy and cool and groovy and hip. Like a lot of gangbangers are going to be wearing mohawks, right? Am I right? That's what gangbangers do. They wear mohawks, right? Oh, like, faux, uh, like but, in the Terminator kind of yeah, idea. But a lot of these, uh, but a lot of these uh, actors, you know, they have another gig later on in the day, so we can't give them a mohawk, so we're going to give them a faux hawk with gel so that then they, they can comb it out and go do, the, do One Life to Live mm-hmm. on a neighboring soundstage. So it's all this kind of like punky, edgy, but... but, but but mostly crafted with gel and bleach. It's very funny. D- Daniel, I, don't, I don't. I don't. I don't dislike it. I don't despise it. I think it's. I I'm think glad it's, it's there. I it's think like it's Pirates le- of the Caribbean. Did you know D- Daniel Negreanu is? Uh, he's Canadian. Yes. And uh, I'm trying to. I'm doing everything I can to learn everything that I can about him just from a Google image search. He doesn't have. A, he doesn't have much of a chin, honestly. No. He wears, he wears headphones, and it looks like he's getting a massage maybe while he's playing. He mm. keeps wearing the same baseball hat that's advertising something. Do these guys, are these guys like NASCAR? It looks like they, they wear a lot of uh, things with uh, little ads and logos on them. Yeah, they figured out pretty, pretty fast that they were on TV, and they could make extra cash by putting PokerStars.net on their hat. What, what is poker? Okay, I should just go to the internet and find yeah, out. People, people play poker on the internet mm. for, for real money. Um, I had a friend, I had a friend who decided that he was, that this was his job. He was going to be a poker, internet poker player, and he'd be playing 25 hands at a time. 
and it becomes <laughs> it's like it's day big. traders it's like those well, guys who just suddenly decide they're gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna it seems like easy money yeah and, and 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 ultimately i think when you're playing 20 hands of poker at a time you're not invested in any one of them and it becomes kind of like playing solitaire you're just you're just uh you you taught yourself kind of the odds of all the different hands and you're just playing the odds and over the course of a whole day of doing that you're up you're up by 15 percent or something and that's you consider so how did he do did he uh did he make some dough off it i don't think he's still doing it frankly because i think a lot of those uh, a lot of them are like 25 cent games i don't think gambling would still be around if it was that easy to win hmm interesting theory well Blackjack is the only game. Poker, poker is an outlier because mm-hmm. it has a, a human factor unlike any other game. But right. And I guess, I don't know, Baccarat, I don't know. But I mean, Blackjack is the only game where you have even a, as I understand it, have even the slightest chance of winning against the house. My, my sense is Baccarat is the, is the one where the odds are best in your favor. Is that right? Yeah. Um, because there's, because there is a, I, I have stood around many Baccarat tables <laughs> and, uh, and you know, elbowed the person next to me and gone. What? What? What is that? What? What the hell is happening? It's now? baffling. It's baffling to me. And they go, "Well, see, this line over here, you can bet against the earlier bet, and that line over there, you push the, you push the, push the bet to the next bet, and then that's how you beat the odds because ultimately, you know, then then you have fifty one percent chance of earning something. And I've had it explained to me a dozen times. I've stood next to a baccarat dealer and asked her as she's. You know, as she's doing it, as she's rolling the dice or whatever, tell me what you're doing, explain what's happening. And she's like, here's how it goes. It's really simple. <laughs> and then she explains some, you know, 15 paragraphs of, of like, uh, space math. And I walk away <laughs> going, I don't know what that was. I am not going to throw my money down on a table where I don't understand. That's, a, that's probably a pretty good rule in gambling. If yeah. you. <laughs> If you don't understand how money is made and lost, you're better off not to bet. Here's me at a casino. I walk into and this is why I hate Las Vegas. Ugh. I walk into a casino. Ding, 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 ding. They're it's all in the key of C, all in the key of C. It's all happening all around me. I'm like, uh-huh, okay, I don't want to sit over there. Those people don't look interesting. Ugh, that guy is disgusting. It's bilge, and pure bilge. And I, I end up over at the, at the, uh, the slot machines, the one-armed bandits. And I go, well, I'm here. I might as well, you know, and I put $5 in. And it goes, and it gives me some number of credits. And I pull the arm until those are gone. And then I'm like, done. Mm -hmm. That's it. I I spent $5 and I feel even that I didn't get my money's worth. And then I just sit and watch people smoke, you know. And in fact, I I have a pretty good time in casinos because I... I have a pretty good time until I see that little old lady with the oxygen tank and the and the uh, right. popcorn bucket full of quarters, plugging them into one of those things, and I'm and then then my heart sinks down into my stomach, and I'm like, mm, I have to go now. I did a gig in Reno a couple of years ago, and I I got there. It was a you know Reno's. You've been to Reno? It's, yeah, in it's fact, not, would, it's, I, not, it's, I not it's not it's not Las Vegas. It's not. 
Yeah. Well, I got there early and I checked, got, you know, finally got, actually, I'm sorry, I take it back. I had to wait to check into my room because some fucking military event was there and motorcycle races and it's... Ah, those assholes. No, well, like, it, you know, they hadn't planned well for it. So there was yeah. a lot of mooky people in line waiting for their room. Was this at Circus Circus? No, no. This was at Anus Anus, I think was the name of the <laughs> place. Oh, yeah. It's it's off strip. The odds are a little better there. Mm-hmm. Anus Anus. Just gotta get in the hole. And, and so I was, I had some time to kill. So I went, oh, I can go over here. I can go to this bar area. I'll play a little bit of uh, blackjack, and I can I can smoke here. So I'll go and I will smoke while I'm waiting for my room, and I will have a drink, and this yeah. will be fun. And you know, I, I said, okay, this is good. You know how it is when you travel, and you know, you, you when you kind of arrive <clears throat> once you're through all the main part of the travel, it's kind of nice to just relax and be where you are. And I was like, okay, this is great. I'm going to get into this. I'm not going to be me. I'm not going to be all stand back and look at it from a removed guy. I'm going to just be here and talk to people and hang out. And uh, and it wasn't long before uh, I saw this is you know I think probably late morning and I saw a woman there um, doing slots while she uh, rocked a baby seat with her right foot. <gasps> so oh. her, ba- her baby was there. She was on like one of those stools, and she's with her right foot. She's she's pulling thing and with her right foot. She's like uh, rocking a baby in the little oh. car seat. Oh dear. Yeah. I um. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm, the, the thing is, these guys, these these gambling guys, they just they, they they look they look like terrible, terrible people. This guy's got yeah. headphones on. Are you allowed to wear headphones while you're playing poker? I, yeah. I think so. I think you can do whatever you want because it's uh because it's the wild west. But but uh, I, my, what I like about Daniel Negrano is that he um he has developed his he has developed his talent to the to the point that he can. This is one of his tricks. He'll he'll go around the table and he'll tell everybody what their hand is. And he's remarkable. Oh, it's a whole nother level of bluffing. Yeah, he he it's remarkable how close he can get because he knows he knows the cards that have been dealt and he just he looks at your face, he knows how you're acting and he he what they call puts you on a certain hand. And I, I imagine playing cards against this guy. There's nothing illegal about it. There's nothing illegal about him saying, I bet you got a king-queen, don't you? And you're sitting there with holding a king-queen. Imagine trying to play poker against that. Like, That's why I say it's like two levels of bluffing. Because on the one hand, you know, it isn't like you're being provoked. Because you can, you can sit there with your stupid douchey sunglasses on and stare. But when somebody says that to you, it's going to be hard not to have some kind of a reaction. Right. And, and so, so Daniel Negrano can have a 2-4 offsuit. And say, I bet you've got a king-queen, don't you? All in. And then you're like, he knows what cards I have, and he's going all in. He must he must have two aces or whatever. And then it turns out he he did know what you had, and he was bluffing. And you're just like... so. And he does it with a kind of a merry... He's, he's a, I think he's a small man. I can't tell for sure. But he strikes me as a smaller guy. And he, he just... I don't know. He, seems he, looks, like he a, looks like amongst these guys, he looks like a nice fella. He's a little bit of a leprechaun. I follow him on Twitter, and uh, I, I don't know. It's one of those funny things where there aren't many celebrities that I that I care about or try to attract their attention. But I <laughs> I have replied to Daniel Negreanu tweets on a set on several occasions, hoping that he will reply. Interesting. And I, and I don't know why. I don't know why I care about this guy. I've seen him on TV. I've watched him play poker. I feel like. His mind is working a certain way that is not akin to mine. I, it's not a, he's he's not a guy I would maybe even naturally be friends with. But, Isn't that funny? Isn't but that I'm funny flirting how that can with happen? him on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's so silly. The internet. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I have to admit, I'm a little bit off my game because now I'm, I'm consumed in these pictures of poker players. I've been like at somebody's house. You know how it is you go to somebody's house and they got the TV on. Mm. I, I, I don't know what this do is. They have plastic on their couches. They ought to. Yeah. God, back in Ohio, everybody did that. But like when I was a kid, you just wouldn't have the TV on when somebody came over. You know, if it's the babysitter or something, and you've got that as like established TV time, that's actually kind of a good transitional thing. But you go to somebody's house, they get the TV on. You know, you can't really say, "Can we not have the TV on?" The TV's mm-hmm. going to be on. So now the TV is the is the is the evening, and oh, sometimes boy, people, you know, what I'm talking about, mm. and, uh, and and it'll be sometimes it'll be poker. And I just I, I watch people watching poker, and I'm like, the joke used to be like watch English people watching darts. And I think I'd rather watch darts. These th- I don't. I, I want all of these people to die in a fire. I don't want any of them to win. They just darts look like are, awful people. Darts are at least a sport. It's absolutely a sport. Yeah. Well, I'm the guy that if I walk into a restaurant, let's say in an airport or anywhere, yeah. uh, where there's a TV on and there's no one in the bar, I just walk around and turn them off. Oh, our, and flight, I, our flight back the other day, we were right under. Uh, the the TV and it was like CNN just blaring. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, if if I can turn them off, there are some airports now where the TVs are I- not in the bar, but they're just throughout the airport. You oh, see. absolutely, like every gate. Yeah, and the TV just blaring CNN, like you're saying. And oh my god, I can't think of a worse thing. I'm, I'm people are just so having... scared. To, men are so scared to be alone. They're yeah. so scared to feel alone. Demon dogs. Demon dogs. Now, here's the other thing. Baccarat. Like, I, I was a point when I was looking at James Bond movies, and I thought I should learn more about Baccarat. I tried yeah. to read the Wikipedia page, and I thought, this has got to be the most confusing thing I've ever heard in my life. Now, I, I know you're not at the stage quite yet, but I, I want to plant a seed. I, I want to hear how it goes when you, you know, you're, you're, your little daughter start doing stuff. I want to I hear you uh, how it goes when you try to explain baseball. Oh, because we have a baseball field right by our house, and we yeah. went out to watch the baseball. And I don't mean like to be like explaining, Dad. That big truck is carrying dirt for making the road. Like who cares? But we're sitting there, and we're watching it, and it feels described me. <laughs> <laughs> the airplane is in the sky. That big truck is carrying tar for the roads. Now tar <laughs> is made out of a petroleum <laughs> distillate. Look over there. Do you see that man? He's my pole. You know how trees grow? Well, let me show you. Doesn't it seem a little bit warm? A little bit warm? Are you wearing a trench coat? But you were explaining to her. Well, we're baseball? sitting there, and there's like a baseball game going on. Really terrible baseball game. I think only terrible teams play at our park. But we're sitting there watching them, and they're you know whacking around. And I, uh, I don't, I don't want to be explain things stupidly to my daughter. I don't want to dumb things down. But right. I tried to explain baseball, and every for everything that I could explain, it required either more explanation and or uh, something that contravened what I just said. Right, right. Right, so there's these nine guys That's why it's America's game. (laughs) It's America's pastime. There's nine nine people out there and that guy's going to come up with the bat and so that pitcher's going to throw the ball and he's going to try to hit it. Easy enough. Okay, well, if he hits it, he has to go around all the bases. Right. I don't think most baseball fans would, would describe that as an obligation. Although, I guess it is. This is the, well, this is, he doesn't have to, have to. He gets to. Uh, he has, wait a minute. You're saying he has he the opportunity to, to run the around the bases. You yeah, don't have but, to do anything. Yeah, if he doesn't want to, he doesn't have to. Could you choose to play different positions if you wanted to in baseball? Baseball seems choose? like it's got a lot of rules. Well, for example, they got they got all the different positions. You got first 
outfield, you know, left. They have field, different right talents. So a first baseman and a oh, third baseman have well, different. This, skills. this I know. I just, I yeah. think you kind of have to stand in a certain place and stuff. But I'm trying to explain. And, and so they throw the ball, and uh, if he, if he, but I mean, how do you explain a foul ball with a full count? Hmm. That was a strike, but it wasn't a strike. Right. Okay, so that was a strike. Well, wait, he didn't swing at it. Just well, the rules. Wait, wait, wait. So it's wait. Hang on a minute. So there's three balls, and I'm, I'm speaking for my daughter, who yeah, yeah. at this point right. would not be able to, to understand any of this. So there's well, this uh, is why I, this is why I didn't fully understand baseball until I was 32. It's incredibly complicated if you really think about it. But I had the advantage for for several years there of going to baseball games with our good friends Jason Finn, and then other times with Ben Gibbard, and both of these guys are super baseball fans. Ben, uh, yeah. So so Jason is too. Jason Jason used to score the games. He would he would do that thing that old men do. Where he would do take that. a piece of paper and a piece of and a pencil and he'd score these fucking games. And he would explain everything that was happening as it was happening. And it was like me sitting at a baccarat table where I'm like, "Well, now, now well now what's a balk?" And he's like, "Well, here's the thing about a balk. It hardly ever happens, but bada 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 bada." And he would explain what a balk was. And I had to see like 13 balks before I, I kind of got got it, you know, like infield fly rule and all these things, yes. all this esoterica. But but uh, but also, I, you know, what these guys communicated to me through their love of baseball, uh, Ben's and, and Jason's, and they, they love baseball in different ways. But, you know, they they uh, they communicated the kind of like Greek drama that baseball is and, mm-hmm. and made me understand that you really don't understand the game. You can't appreciate the game unless you're also really following the players' stories. You know, these guys would come up to bat, and I'm thinking, well, he, he's going to get some baseballs thrown at him, and then one of them he's going to either hit or not. And Jason's like, no, 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 this guy got called up from the minors after 15 years of playing AAA ball and for the New Zealand, uh, you know, uh, ocelots. And, uh, and this is a real Cinderella story. And I'm like, Cinderella story, right, I hear that a lot. What does that mean? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is amazing. This guy here, boy, he, uh, you know, he had some injuries last season. And so all that, all that extra material that they're bringing into, the, into every game where they know the narrative of each one of these players, right? And they're bringing that, you know, they're bringing those narratives into it, and and all of a sudden you feel like, oh, it's the freaking Iliad to these people. It's like, you know, here come here 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 comes this guy who's from uh, like he's a, he's a guy who used to play for the opposing team, and he's coming oh. up, and he's back home for the first time for but, sure. Or here's a guy that got drafted right out of high school, and and. And I see their the eyes. Coach, the with, coach is getting old, and this might be his last, you know, season stuff like that. Right, or this, you know, this pitcher. This is a pitching duel, and and you and you you realize like, oh, they are seeing this as a clash of titans, like the Etruscans against the Phoenicians. Like it, it isn't, it isn't just a bunch of dumb, overpaid, fat kids out there running around, running around a field. It's like this is this. It's all full. It's all laced with metaphor for a true fan mm-hmm. uh and and i'm not interested in it for I, I wish i wish i could I, I totally intellectually understand that i feel that way with comics mm-hmm. but um you know and and things like tv shows i've gotten into but it's i, I can't get past the fat rich guys thing not, not it's not the fat or the rich it's just it's just it's so 
I just, I just cannot get into it. And you well, know, if, I, if, don't, if, I don't begrudge people liking it, but I, I begrudge how much it is forced down my throat all the time. It drives me crazy. It made me realize that the, in my private moments, walking around a city, the things that I am enjoying about the, you know, my little private uh, narratives are also kind of laced with metaphor and full of full of metadata that other people don't have access to. And, you know, I'm walking around and I'm like, oh, this is like the other day I was in an airport and I, it was just, I'm just navigating an airport, which I've done a million times. And it's late at night. I'm the only person there. And I wasn't trying to make it fun for myself. I just started, I just started uh, having a spy adventure in the airport <laughs> by myself because I don't know why, because there it is, you know, like I'm in the airport and a couple of, I walk through a couple of pneumatic doors and all of a sudden I'm, all of a sudden I'm trying to lose a tail and all of a sudden I am, uh, you know, trying to get some microfiche. But something, something trips off your spidey sense. And even if it's a jokey spidey sense, you go, "Uh Oh, here we go. And it's then I'm having, and then I'm having fun and I'm, and, and I'm seeing, I'm seeing all, all the, uh, in all the airport hieroglyphics, I'm seeing all this other information, and I'm and I'm remembering, you know, the great uh, the great espionage stories that kind of make up a, a part of my imagination, and um, and I'm passing the time, I guess. It's consuming though, because aren't you also you're looking for means of aggress? You're looking for who you can count on. You've all you always say this. You when you're at the terminal, you're figuring out who you're going to have to take out and right. who you might be able to get on your side. Well, I'm thinking like, okay, there's the security door. Watching the watching the janitor come and slide his little card and the door opens and I realize that is the way I'm going to have to get out of here and I, so I'm going to have to take that janitor down and can I yes cut his, cut his hand off hand off and, never, there might be one of those uh, you know cybernetic things and that is that is essentially I guess what people are doing when they watch baseball it's just they're not their their imagination is engaged in a different way they have a different they have a, a different set of uh, a different a, a different group of material is going into the function machine and it is coming out the other side as a different uh a different shape sausage links but really they're just using their mind to pass pass the time so there's the game there's the game that's happening on the field but there's another kind of game that's happening in somebody's head yeah which is, it's like when i watch when i watch two pigeons time. fighting over some bread and I, I pick a side like i want that guy to win <laughs> right right and i turned on the <clears throat> world series the other day uh, and I don't care about uh, Detroit or San Francisco, frankly, as as far as sports teams go. I love them both as cities. <laughs> no argument here. We're all good. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I'm watching it and I'm like, okay, I'm rooting for Detroit because I feel like Detroit is the perennial underdog in everything. And then there's uh, then there, the the San Francisco guys have a story. There was a guy in, from on the San Francisco team that literally had spent his entire baseball career in the minors. And had just gotten called up last year as an old guy, and now he's pitching in the World Series one year later. After hell, hell of a story, he's like, "Yeah, it's a, it's an, it's an incredible Cinderella story." And so I'm watching this thing, and every time somebody comes up to bat, I'm like, "Well, I hope this guy wins." And I'm the worst sports fan in the world. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like somebody's girlfriend. I hope this guy wins. I like his hair. I like their hats. <laughs> but it's definitely like that with the Olympics. You know, they're always trying to insert all of this, like, oh, you know, drove her at 5 a.m. Yeah. to swim practice every morning. Yeah, and a lot of those, a lot of those Olympic uh, montages 
what I come away from it uh, with is like, oh, what terrible parents. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> Did they really do that? Like the girl that won the combined gymnastics thing. It's like, well, we wanted her to succeed at this. So we sent her away. I haven't seen my daughter in two years because she's been at the gymnastics school in Iowa and I can't afford to go there. So I'm here working to make the money to to pay for her to be at this gymnastics place where I never where I don't get to see her and she's only 13 or something. And I was I, like, I didn't feel like they were terrible parents, but I just felt like, wow, weird, like weird priorities. Yeah, because things like running fast by themselves are not that interesting. But this girl won all these Olympic medals and the rest of her life she'll be the one that won all those Olympic medals. Yeah, and you meet her at a party, you'll be a little envious. You know, it's like having an Emmy. It's an EGOT. Yeah. It's an EGOT. She's basically the Olympic EGOT. I think I do something similar to this, and I, I had never thought about thought about it in this way until now. Um, and our, our friend Scott Simpson has pointed this out to me, that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like suspicious guy. Like, mm-hmm. I'm always trying to notice, like, what's not quite right here. Or why did right. they decide to do it that way? Or, and I do this constantly, and I don't even really think about it. And I definitely don't think about how weird it is until I find myself saying it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. It could be something like, uh, it's kind of weird. They bust all the tables in this place twice, but they haven't bust that table yet. I wonder mm. why that is. And then I start thinking about, well, maybe the busboy's mad at that waiter. Right. Maybe they're expecting that person to come back. And, and, and then I, now I'm suddenly I'm the spy. Right. right. So I'm always noticing things in my in my room uh, in Seattle. Hmm. It's interesting. It used to be you always had mini bars in rooms, and now you don't see mini bars very much anymore. They have a refrigerator in here, but not a mini bar. I wonder why they did that. Is it because it's it was just uh, people were asking for reversals on charges? It was too costly to restock. Were there liability problems? And now all of a sudden, like an hour later, I, I wake up, you know, in a cold sweat, and I've been thinking about this thing for an hour. And I, right. So for me, I, I, I'm very sympathetic. Walking around an airport, I see, I see, especially in an airport, you know, because you get nothing better to do. Yeah, yeah, you're just trying. It's like Gitmo, you know. You just you're, you're going to like find little games for yourself. Well, and the thing about airports is there is that there is that underclass of people who are in the airport all the time. They work there. Mm-hmm. It's not. I wouldn't even say underclass, but they they are a subclass to the like the airport fills up with people at empty. Well, well, most most of them are from empties. Middle Earth. But there, but here's the here are these people who are always here, and you don't notice them. It's like, it's like a, a, at this at the public market. I remember I was down at the public market uh, here in Seattle with with somebody who was visiting, and uh, there was a Native American guy who was panhandling, kind of right in the middle of the market, and this person said, "Oh my God, look at that! It's a real Indian." And I said, you're surrounded by Indians here in Seattle. There are Native Americans all over the city. And they were like, what, really? And I said, yeah, you're not seeing them. And we stood there in the Hmm. market and looked around. And I was like, look over there. See see right there? And all of a sudden, they became aware that there were Native Americans all around us. And they just had never... They had never, they, they had they had grown used to because of wherever they grew up or however it is that uh, this happens that they just didn't see Native Americans because they had a sense that anytime they saw a Native American that person was going to be either uh, panhandling them or or judging them or wearing, there was wearing some, a headdress. You know, yeah, there was some there was some thing about indians in america that made them uncomfortable and so they just stopped seeing them and uh 
you know, you can't you can't spend five minutes in Seattle downtown without realizing that that this is kind of a, a place where Native American culture is existing simultaneous with Seattle culture, but in a way like uh, separate. And um, and people just don't they just change their the focus of their eyes a little bit, and they don't they don't see them. And it's the same in airports. There are people in airports that are there all the all t- all the time, and you you don't see them. You're looking for your gate. You're looking around. You you don't realize that there's this other culture happening that's always there. And when well, you do yeah. realize it, you're like, oh, hello. And you like, always think about it, of course, from your own point of view. So the things that I first noticed a lot when I first visited San Francisco in 1997 versus what I noticed now are really different. And this <laughs> is really Psych 101 stuff, but I think it's incredibly interesting. You don't even see the vomit. Uh, you kidding yeah. me? I, I, the thing is, I, I I don't even notice the poop. I walk around the poop without even seeing it now. <laughs> I know it's there, but you know, again, like my spidey sense. Mm-hmm. But but I mean, this is one way to start feeling a little bit more alive in life is to realize how much stuff you've chunked. You know, yeah. you've, oh, you, that's chunk, a great chunking, word for it. chunking, and heuristics and algorithms account for so much of our existence that if we were to really stop and think about it. Uh, it would blow your mind how many things you've chunked. A, yeah. a great example, when my daughter and I go on wait for a streetcar, there's a multi, multi, multi-ton vehicle. F- like, you go to wait for a BART train, there's there's something flying by you at like 40 miles an hour. This giant, And you're like four feet away from that. Yeah. Like, what kind of frontier guy would feel good like standing next to a giant piece of metal flying by at 40 miles an hour? You've yeah. habituated yourself to that because it hasn't jumped off the track and killed you yet. Right. Right. That's one. I mean, there's a whole bunch of these where think about the way you drive to work. Now, in your case, you don't have a job and you always drive a different route. So that's that's just in in and of itself makes you more alive. But I mean, I I think that's what happens with me. And this is my own probably mental illness. And it's why I'm very sympathetic to crazy people is I, I sometimes wonder what's the pattern here that I haven't seen yet. That's I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm almost obsessed by that. Like, why did you choose the, like a marketing message. Why did you choose to put that ad in this place with that wording? Now, of course, a lot of this probably means next to nothing because it's just a bunch of idiots probably. But I, I, I don't know. I, 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 uh, my life gets better if I let myself strip away some of the chunking and re-experience that. And sometimes that's what travel is, you know, uh, once you get beyond the airport even. But you yeah. go somewhere and you try and see something anew, including yourself, and that means instead of saying, well, here's all the things here that are weird, and here's all the things that I can't get here, right? Right? Yeah. You know, here's all the things I can get but don't want, and here's all the things that I want but can't get. Pims, Pims biscuits. What are, what, that's a, uh, that's a tea, uh, that's a, a, tea, a tea room? What do they call that? A tea that's trinket? A, yeah, it's a tea trinket. <laughs> well, I, I don't know why this is, and I, uh, <clears throat> because this isn't true of anybody else in my family. I don't know why why I'm like this, but I do everything I can to break my own patterns every day. Like I, when I put a cup of coffee in the microwave, I never heat it for the same amount of time. No way. Yeah. Because you manually, you manually choose. Yeah. A lot of times. Whoa. One minute, two seconds. I, had, I when I make my daughter's milk in the morning, I've got it down to a science because I yeah. realized we have a quick minute button. So right. Quick I minute. A, button. I get a coffee but I feel cup. Like the, I feel like the quick minute button is the is the enemy. Holy shit! I'm Vichy of consciousness. I'm. You know what? I'm complicit because mm-hmm. what I do is I, I know. Here's the thing. It used to be that I would go get it set for like 52 seconds or whatever. I said, wait a minute. If I add a little bit more milk to oh. this cup, oh. I can go. I can hit clear, quick minute, quick minute on. I hit tip 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 right in a row, three buttons, and I'm making milk. There you go. Yeah. But but I'm a little less alive, aren't I? 
Well, this is this is why I take a different route uh, into town every day. Uh, partly. At, uh, well, yeah. You also want to lose a tail, right? We've I probably said too much. Tail. We've said too much. But I, but, but I also, like, in the process of taking a different route to town every day, I've been down every street in the city. And, um, you know, there are, there are, there are, you're accruing accidental benefit all the time from breaking your own pattern. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the, the pediatrician, when, uh, when my daughter was born, said, you know, children really like patterns. They like regimented sort of, they, they like to, the dependable day. Mm-hmm. As though this was like, you know, this was uh, pediatric 101. And I said to her, I was like, well, that's just not going to happen. Um, so we're going to have to, if this is true, if kids like this kind of certainty, then we're going to have to find a different way to to uh, to impress upon her that things are certain in life. But I'm not I'm not going to uh, make her this make her breakfast at the same hour every day. It's just never going to happen. And uh, that little bit of pushback, the pediatrician was like, oh. Oh, well, I'm sure that's fine too. And I was like, "Oh, it's another example of people saying shit where they 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 don't right. mean it." There's no you know? there's no like real basis for that. No, or even if there is. I mean, they, she read 450 papers written that uh represent 450 different studies that people have done that have come to this conclusion. Turns oh, out. But turns turns out they're just a bunch of studies that people did on some group of kids in a room. It doesn't mean anything. Every right. person is individual, and you might have you might have four hundred kids that all like their uh, their Elmo doll given to them at the same minute of the day because their Elmo doll's always been given to them at the same minute of every day. My my daughter is almost two, and she has she has uh, so far exhibited no adverse effects to living a life that is almost 100% spontaneous. Have you tried to um have you tried to push the envelope? I mean is it a different size Delmo, different color, eye missing and then back? I mean, have you I don't I don't I'm I'm I am not yet experimenting on her in that way although no, it's it will so surely fun. come. So it will fun. surely come. But you know, when when she's ready to go to bed, it's obvious. And when she's ready to wake up, we all wake up. Like I I remember I we went to buy a car from a from a gal who had just had a this was this was back when I was buying a lot of cars. She had just had a baby, and she had a couple of uh, older kids. And we were buying her car, and her, her her new son was like what a week old or something like that. And we were like, "Wow, that must have, that must really change things for you." I mean, that's you've got a, you've got a couple of boys, you know, one's five and one's three, and now you got this little one. It must really have, you know, must be like crazy times right now. And she said about the infant, yeah, well, he's got a couple of more weeks where he's kind of can do his own thing, but then he's got to get on our schedule. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a couple of weeks to, you know, just be a two-week-old, and then he's going to have to get on their schedule. And uh, and I think that a lot of people live that way, you know? You got to get on my schedule. So. But on the other hand, you, you, I, I feel like I'm hearing two things here. Are, are you saying that you, you're not going to uh, create and hew to a baby-centric schedule, correct? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, went, I, I went the other way. I think, I, think, uh, I think we all went the other way, which was that I don't have a schedule, so it's the baby's schedule. I right. right. The baby's schedule 100% for the first year of her life. And now her schedule is... 
when she's with me, it is whatever happens. And when she's with her Nana, of course, Nana is on a schedule. Oh, Nana is a, is Nana is a, is a lady who is on a, she's, I mean, she's got a dog that needs walks. She has a beautiful, beautiful garden to keep up. Yeah. And she's on, I mean, she's on a much more of a schedule than that. I mean, Nana is on a schedule where she is rotating condiments <laughs> and stuff where it's like, Oh, it's March 16th. Well, that, that's, that's time, time for some new zesty Italian. That's the day when the tartar sauce moves from the top shelf of the door of the refrigerator to the middle shelf. Cause you got to keep everything on and everything's gone. I, I have I have such a, a funny uh, you know it's easy to become a smug parent because that's it's right there in the name parent you um, you become smug but when you hear people who are uh, you know you know you can like schedule a C section and stuff like that and right. not for medical reasons but just because it fits your schedule yeah. yeah I mean you know whatever teach his own but it is funny to me when, when when somebody has that kind of attitude of like well we're just gonna uh, you know get this uh, as though it's a puppy who will eventually learn about the paper. Well, you can't have parent without errant. Whoa. Right? Man, I sometimes right? forget how much you're here to help. Mm. Pair. Right. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> 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 uh, but, you know, it's like, uh, you know, when they, we want to have everything planned out. You want to have everything all uh, all squared away. And it's like, they're, they're just, you know, especially when the, when the baby's little. Yeah. You know, I think a lot about the demon dogs, to be honest demon with dogs. you. They're um, just howling with their red eyes. They're just nipping at your heels. You know, I slept pretty well last night, but I'm, I still feel a little bit out of it today. I did, I did some stuff this morning, and so I'm, I'm a little confused. Well, sometimes sometimes getting a good night's sleep can actually make you a real fuzzball. The whole oh, well, this is, we're going through, if, if you're curious, we're going through a sleep thing right now. She's yeah. uh, like, well, and you know, I came back from, from our trip. We, yeah. we, we should at some point talk about our, our thing, probably. Should. Because you know, I think it went really well. I think it did too. Yeah, I thought you were amazing. See, you really were. Amazing. You're a truth teller. You you wouldn't you wouldn't say that to shine me on, would you? I would not bullshit you. You would avoid it. Your your uh, game changing that you did, the game changing that you accomplished. I mean, you changed a lot of games that night, and uh, I was proud to I was proud to be on stage with you. I was proud to share a stage with you. Well, you called me. Um, I remember I, I said the same thing in an email to you, and I believe you, you called me a fag. Um, no, I said gay. Gay. You call me gay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I feel the same. Is, uh, fag is like uh, that's ableist. We don't use that term that's an anymore. ableist word. Yeah. It's ableist. Yeah. I feel the same way. Oh, God, we should it's talk normative. about it. We should we should jizz about that a little bit later. But all I want to say was I came back. I was tired. I, I could tell I was getting a stress bump. So night before last, uh, you know, sometimes I, I'm usually super dad, hundred percent attention. Don't mm-hmm. look at the phone. Don't do anything. You know, and I think in some ways that's been a, a not great thing in some ways because that means whenever dad's around, we, you play with dad, whether that's at the playground or where forever mm-hmm. or, or, or wherever. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. it was like five o'clock two days ago, and I was like, you know what? We're going to read a little bit and then we're going to lay down. I'm going to sleep. You may either go to sleep with me or you can go in another room and be extremely quiet. And she ended up falling asleep and she slept till like 8 30. Mm-hmm. So, of course, now she goes to bed at 10, as you probably know from how this stuff goes. Now that throws everything off. That's not you. You can't bank up sleep with a kid, right? It, it throws off. You call it <laughs> right. when you tell you try and tell your your single un, not single but your un un uh, your childless friends about something called sleep hygiene. They roll their eyes and think you're being all Northern California. But if uh-huh. your kid's not sleeping, everybody's fucked. Right. It really. I mean, somebody's going to bear the brunt of that. There's going to be some caregiver that has to to deal 
with, with when there's not sleep in place. And so that's why I think it's funny when people are like, have these ideas, they read a book or something and they're like, Oh yeah, we're going to get them on, get, get them onto this schedule of, uh, of this and that. And especially when they're little, it's just, that's, it, it, it's really weird. It's like trying to train a brick. You yeah. know, it's, it's like, you really think that's going to work? I mean, you're, you're going to, like, you're just going to frustrate both of you and you're not necessarily going to make it better. I think you provide favorable conditions. I, I can't, I'm not sure if he said, he said this or quoted this, but this from my friend Jeff Veen once, uh, in the way he, his approach to design is to make it easy to do the right thing. Right. And I, yeah. I believe in this. So I think if you create, instead of telling your child to be honest, instead create conditions in which it's hard to be anything but to want to be anything but honest. Mm-hmm. Right. If you mm-hmm. want to create, if you want the kid to sleep, create a condition where it's easy to sleep in the way that you want, which sounds subtle, but I think that's really, really different from go get in bed now. Yeah. So creating stress. Cause now daddy's schedule says it's time for you. It's 725. So it's time for you to go be in bed. Yeah. And if it's 726, now we're both mad. Yeah, there's a there, there's one there's one bone of contention in my family right now, which is that sometimes I feel like baby has to sit on daddy's lap. Oh, and sometimes baby doesn't want to sit on daddy's lap. <laughs> she wants to get down. Uh-huh. And I say, <clears throat> and 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 there are a lot of people in my family who feel like baby should be allowed to do whatever she wants. They, and had, I their, say, they had their chance. I say this is this is true. Baby has some times in the day when she is allowed to do whatever she wants, but there are times, and this is one of them, when baby needs to just sit on daddy's lap, because, and this is what I always come I always come back to, what if we are in a hidden train compartment, mm-hmm. and the Gestapo is checking documents? Does baby get to get down and run around? So, like, what? Like, you're in like a like hiding in the floor type situation. Exactly. You have limited space. And I, do, I hate to say this, John, I hate to keep bringing this up, but the last episode of mesh, hmm. it just keeps bringing me back to the last episode of mesh. They're sitting there in the bus. They're about to be discovered by the North Koreans. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and they're in the back <clears throat> and this bus full of uh, civilians and Hawkeyes there. And this baby, remember the baby? Yeah. The baby, the baby, the baby's crying and crying and crying. And that's revealing their position. Yeah. Now that 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 is uh, with with much respect to to a, a simple village woman, she'd never rehearse that. No, she she had not. She had raised a baby that thought it was okay to just go do what baby wants. That's right. And is that right? Is, Am I on the right track here? This is yeah. you're preparing for something much larger than having a healthy child. Well, and this is what happened in that uh, terrible Quentin Tarantino movie, the uh, the one where they shoot Hitler in the face four hundred times. Oh, the uh, the Angry Jews movie. Yeah, the baby under the the baby under the house makes a sound. Mm. So here's the thing: if you have a baby, you need to prepare. Oh, her. that opening that opening yeah, sequence opening that was se- great. It was a great opening sequence. The rest of the movie was particularly horseshit. But the beginning opening sequence could have been a whole film. That was very well done. Um, but uh, but so so my contention is, and I have to I have to hold I have to hold the women in my clan back with a saber <laughs> while I am holding baby on my lap mm-hmm. because they because baby's crying and they want to make it better. And so I keep them at bay with a saber in one hand, and with the other hand, I just say, baby. You hold your daughter fast. I say, baby, <laughs> let's say, you're too young to understand this, but let's say there's Gestapo searching this farmhouse. We do not, this is not the time to play. This is the few minutes where you just sit quietly on daddy's lap. And she fights and screams and yells, and I'm like, fight and scream and yell all you like. But when that moment comes, we will be ready. We will be trained. 
So it's just, it's, you know, think about this. Think about how you train a police dog. And first of all, I got to say, John, I'm going to start doing this today. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, some, and more often than not, it'll probably be that you need to go in another room and be extremely quiet because the Gestapo mm-hmm. might be coming. That's right. Um, but, you know, if you train a police dog, you don't just take the dog into uh, uh, like a, a drug house and have it smell for drugs in the house. Right, you do all kinds of things. You have you do all of this training. First of all, you've got to train the dog to like be a police dog in general. You get, it's got to follow orders, and then don't right. you do lots of stuff with having it sniff things in a field, and it has to detect stuff, and you're introducing things and getting it more subtle and subtle and subtle. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be on voice command because you can't have a police dog that's just that's just that's just biting. You don't people. just throw a bag of weed at it and take it to the airport. It, it exactly. takes some training. Yes, it does. And that's what you're doing. It seems to me that what you're doing is you're doing the uh, you're doing a kind of uh, I don't know allied pow- power parenting. Yeah, that's right. And and and, and a, if a, anybody a, gives away that train, it's not going to be your daughter. And she she is understanding that in her whole life there is only one person that is that draw, that ultimately draws a big line, the fat line with a saber, the fat line with the saber in the in the sand, which is. There is nothing now that you can say or do, nothing that anyone can say or do that will divert me from this project of you sitting quietly on my lap. You could set yourself on fire and I would hold you in my lap until you burn to a cinder. I will kill your mother and my own mother with this saber rather than let you get off my lap. Mm-hmm. Does everyone understand? Good. You s- you're, send- you're sending a, a very a very clear message about how this is going to work. That's right. Now let's all sit quietly hmm. and let the Gestapo pass. <laughs> and it is very hard for everyone to 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 swallow this bitter pill, which is why I carry a saber. <laughs> Every father should. Every father should. It I, should I, be think the guy, I think I told you. I, I told you about the guy I went to school with who uh, who sold uh, sold Snickers bars and uh, and bought a Marshall amp. Mm-hmm. Uh, stop me if I've told you this other part. But his dad, his his dad was the head of uh, the canine unit uh, at our sheriff's department. Have I told right. you this? Right. Okay. So so Phil's dad, who, who uh, is a really really cool, interesting guy. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I learned a lot from this guy. He was, he was a really cool, really smart guy. And, and so he's in charge of all of the guys who have dogs and do dog police stuff. Mm-hmm. And apparently, I mean, he said, he, he told me all kinds of interesting things. But the one that really stuck with me was, you know, first of all, these dogs go and live with the police officer. Yeah. Like yeah, it's, yeah. it's not their pet, but I mean, they, they have to have a very strong bond. Oh, they're bonded. Right, right. But there's a lot of and, – and so then after – it's a weird thing, though, because they're not just watching the dog. They're also watching the dude because these are fucking Rottweilers. Yeah. Rottweilers and, – and what Phil's dad would say to me is that uh, – God, I am getting old and I think I'm repeating myself. But he said, you know, a Rottweiler, it's, it's like a Marine. Mm-hmm. Like a, a Rottweiler will follow every order to the letter, you know, from the chain of command. But it also knows what to do when there's no order in place. Mm-hmm. It's like a, com- a commando dog, mm-hmm. which is great. But here's the problem. If you're not smarter than your dog and you're not more resolute than your dog, that Rottweiler will run your fucking house. Absolutely. You will never have a life again because a Rottweiler is bigger than you. It's stronger than you. And in some sense, it is stronger. It is also smarter than you. 
Mm-hmm. And he says, that's the thing is we would, we, we go and we monitor these guys. We train them. We, we test out both the dog and the, uh, the, the handler. And, and the thing is, he says, you can learn so much about the character as with a beard. You learn so much about the character of the police officer, um, by Watching how them how they, try and interact with this dog. Yeah, and just seeing how their dog is. Yeah. You know, you got you got you got one of these little nervous people with three chihuahuas running around. There's a pretty good chance that's going to be a pretty nervous person at the other end of the uh, of the cord. Yeah. Well, because because the because the human being has introduced all these variables, all these concepts, all these irrelevant concepts, like I, that they want to be nice. Does the dog like me? All these things that never occurred to the, the dog. The dog just wants to know what the rule is. Yeah. The dog wants to be... The wants, it, to, wants be, to please you. dog wants to please you. wants to please the pack. It wants to, the dog wants to know its place in a pack. In the pack. Yes. Precisely. It, it, a dog... It's This is what... This is... John, God damn it. This is another thing people need to learn. Do, yes, dogs want to please us. That is their nature. But, but they want to please us because they think we're the boss. Not because we're nice. Oh, they have no interest in pleasing us to earn our friendship. No. No, no, and they, they, a dog is not happy when they think they might be in power or maybe not. They're happy when they know who's running the show. Well, this is the interesting thing about our show the other day. We did a show in Seattle with five guys, all of whom are alpha-type people. Well, some are, more, know, some are more alpha than others. Some are more alpha than others. Are we talking about the jo- show or the panel? The, uh, the, well, both. I mean, <laughs> the same group of people. Uh, and Jonathan Colton at one point said... Listen, you know, I don't want to get in the middle and start tangling with you silverbacks. And I was like, all right, that's all right, that's fair. But he was making a point that there was in that show, there, there are all these, and this, is the, this was part of my desire to get five really talented people together and collaborate. There are all these questions of, of like ape dynamics that... Nobody wants to address. Not I only, think I was pretty good at being a beta dog. You were, uh, there, there, you were awesome. Scott Simpson was awesome. I think, given John my Colton history, awesome. given, <laughs> 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 I think, given my history uh-huh. and, and my and my pack problems as a human being, I think I I'm not even gonna, my performance aside. I think I was a, I didn't I, I didn't complain unduly about the tuxedos after it was a done deal. No, you you acquiesced to the tuxedos is what you did. I did. I, I got down. I laid on my back and I said, "Please don't hurt me." <laughs> you rolled over. You put all four legs in the air. That's you what you said, do. Here's the thing: you get a dog, you get a dog, and it starts acting up. You know what you do if you're strong enough? This is you just when it's a puppy. You grab that fucking dog. You put it on its back. And you hold it down with it on its back. Mm. That is the way that you show a dog who's in charge. Well, yeah, like my mom climbing into the, her fucking dog's kennel. What? My mom periodically. <laughs> what? Periodically makes Gibson get <laughs> out of breaks, his dog she bed. She breaks all his toys. She she makes him get out of his dog bed and she climbs in and she lays down on his bed. <laughs> and she stares at him and she goes, my bed. <laughs> No. I okay. I've accepted I, all of this up until now. There's no way that your mom does that. One hundred percent. And she says, "I let you sleep in this kennel. Holy this is shit. not your kennel." And Gibson goes, Ooh. and she's oh like, "All God. right, glad we had, glad we had this talk." And she climbs out, 
and then he goes back in. I mean, he understands. And, and order, order is established. And you know what's funny, though, is also, you know, she was a computer programmer. It's weird how many computer programming jobs go off the rails because people don't act like the code base is a shared resource. Hmm. They mm-hmm. act like it's, no, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. again, back to the bases ball. Like, if you started going out there and thinking it was all about you just, you know, uh, what, trying to look cool while you were swinging the bat, or yeah. while it was about you trying to make eyes with somebody in, in the stadium, all sounds silly, but you'd get your ass kicked because that's not your job. Your job is to go out there and hit the fucking ball, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The order, the order must be restored. And uh, and uh, oh my god, is it a yeah. is it a covered kennel? Oh, it's a full on crate. She has to climb in. It's one of those igloos. It's like a fucking igloo. She climbs in right. the goddamn igloo. You you serve at She's my pleasure. She's seventy eight years old. <laughs> you, you, you you should see her. You know she'll. Uh, I have watched her walk down the street late at night ahead of me. You know, I'm trying to catch up to her like, mom, you shouldn't be out walking. She walks right into the center of like the, what, what in some cases could be construed as the most intimidating scenario, which is to say a group of four teenage. So I'm saying, I'm saying between 15 and 17 year old gangster, like street corner hangout, Scene. Desperate with people, des- desperate people who have no idea what they even have to lose. They're, they're teenagers. They have no. They have no sense that they are mortal, and they are all wearing gang colors. And they are standing on a street corner in the middle of the night, in the middle of the hood. And my mom will walk right into the middle of them and say, "I think that it's reprehensible that you just threw your candy wrapper on the ground or something like that." And I'm, you know, I'm a block and a half behind, going, "Mom, no!" Oh my god, and. They, they straighten up. I mean, I've watched it happen. They're like, "Yes, ma'am," and pick their candy bar wrapper up off the ground. She's one of those. It's like She's a Jedi those- thing. It's yes, like that. It's a Frank Kufel thing. There are some people who just have a certain way of carrying themselves and have that principal feeling. And if I did that, I, 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 I couldn't. I, you might be able to do that with some authority, but you're also big and intimidating. Your mom's not a not a giant person. Yeah, but those kids wouldn't be intimidated by me, you know. That that right. my you're, size, you're my size would just would just uh, would just encourage them to go on on the defensive attack. But my mom just it's I, what it, I think what it is is that we all have in the back of our head this switch where you do what your grandmother tells you, you know. And I feel like that that is why. That yeah, is, I, think that, I think that was, was a, a such kind a good of Secretary of State. Who Madeleine Albright? You say Madeleine Albright? Yeah, she's an attractive lady. Mm. She had a beautiful voice. She uh, turns out huh. turns out uh, was a Jewish lady. Is oh, you know what? She found out late in life that she, she was a Jewess. She she found out late in life uh, that uh, yeah that she had this whole culture, this whole cultural background she had n- no idea about her whole life. Isn't That's that bananas. So, so, so you're, but the, here's the thing now, but you and, uh, without naming names, mm-hmm. you and certain members of your family are, are somewhat at loggerheads on the saber and baby holding issue. It, it is believed by these women who are not you that mm-hmm. the child should be allowed to go to stop it from crying. It should be allowed to go wander around. Well, this is the thing. I don't believe that they are, I don't believe that they are approaching these matters with, uh, with the long view and they are responding rather to a crying baby. Their instinct is to mm. take a crying baby and through uh, petting 
and goldfish crackers <laughs> and whatever other things, whatever other sort of uh, sorcery that uh, people apply to children, they want the, ma- the crying baby to stop. They want crying baby to, to go away and happy baby to come back. And what, what they fail to appreciate is that crying baby has no effect on me. Like I really, it, it is the power. It is the power I have in this situation, which is the difference between crying baby and happy baby is, is a math problem to me, not a, an emotional one. Whoa. So I can sit with crying baby on my lap for an hour. And I think it's important that it happened. Periodically. Does it energize you? No, no. I mean, it's exhausting. You're not like a vampire. It's exhausting. But crying baby is sitting on my lap and she is saying, she is saying crying baby is what I do. Crying baby is who I become when I want the situation to change. And I say, I know that's what crying baby is. And she goes, so I am being crying baby and the situation is not changing. And I go, that's right. And then we look at each other and she keeps crying. So her strategy is to cry more. Her strategy is to cry more. And, 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 and I, and I swear to you, you know, the women in my house are tearing their hair out. They sometimes they have to leave the house because the because this you know this sound is not being because this sound is a sound that needs to be addressed and I am not addressing it although I am addressing it. Mm-hmm. I'm addressing it by saying, "Here is the thing: you are going to sit on my lap, and you can do it crying or not. You can. Well, this can go a thousand different ways." But the thing that isn't going to change is that you're, you, I mean, you're not going to get down and it's not, I'm, it's not a thing. It's not a wrestling match. It's just a, the, the crying is not going to produce the results that you're expecting in this mm. instance. It you're, may, you're making, you're making a stronger person. It may, it may, crying may work for you and a lot of other, in a lot of other avenues, but I know you don't have a wet diaper. I know you are not uncomfortable. I know you're not hurt. I know you're not hungry. I know you're not scared. You are just dissatisfied. And dissatisfaction is a thing that we are going to learn to sit and appreciate. You can even store it up for a while. <laughs> dissatisfaction is a thing that we are going to learn to You should savor it like a, like a, like a wound. <laughs> Because all around me, there are people who have never learned to endure dissatisfaction, and I do not admire them. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the beauty part with you is like you 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 do demand satisfaction, but you deny yourself. It seems to me the immediate payoff of going man man man. I'm going to write a letter or something like that. You you let that sit and grow and strengthen. Right, you're you're in training. You're in training for the for the demanding of satisfaction. What 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 made the what made walking into that North Face so exciting to me was that I had had I had had two and a half months <laughs> of discomfort. <laughs> that you know I could have thrown that backpack away the second I got to a town and bought a new backpack in a store, <laughs> but I did not. I carried that broken ass backpack for two months. Mm. I carried you that knew, watch you knew in my it was gonna, You knew it was going to get worse. It was going to get worse. Oh, it was going to get worse, and I knew I was going to have to fix it with with thread and bailing wire. I knew I was. I and I knew, I knew I was going to carry that thing for two months, and I was going to carry it all the way back to Seattle, and I was going to carry it downtown, and I was going to throw it on the floor of that store. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> and so every time it dug into my back, every time that backpack, every time I had to take it all apart and 
sew it back together. It was just like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you made everyone in the store sit on your lap. And I made everybody so sad <laughs> while I got my satisfaction. I get I get mail from people all the time saying, I am trying to get satisfaction. Will you help me? Mm. Well, and, you know, I can help you, but is, not in the way you expect. That's right. My feeling is, I'm not going to help you get satisfaction. Right. You, But I can help you by saying, I, I 100% support your desire to get satisfaction. Yeah, there was a somebody tried to social network me the other day. I want you to. Will you retweet my dissatisfaction? Oh, they want you to be like, the uh, social media fixer. Yeah, I'm not going to be your megaphone. Uh, you know, if if part of your dissatisfaction is that you are not you are not able to socially mediate your problem with these people, let that be another log on your fire. Mm. <laughs> You could you could really become. I mean, I, I know you don't have the time for something like this nowadays, but you could become a kind of coach. You could you could become somebody. No, I'm I'm just saying. I got to know. Uh, it's just something to think about. Is you yeah. could you could. I'm not saying you would have to hold them on your lap. Maybe that could be. Maybe that could be just the first week or so. You come in for an hour, and I, and and you maybe maybe you know how about this? You go to their house. You shake them out of bed. Yeah. Private. Get out. Get out of my bed. And you lay in their bed. You can make them watch. You make them watch you while you sleep in their bed, and they're tired and confused. Stand at attention at the foot of this bed and watch me sleep. My bed. I let you sleep here. Watch me curl up with your. Watch me turn your pillows to owls. That's it's it's a terrific idea because what you're what what you're saying in some ways is it's funny. There's a, there's a um, again with the irony. The irony of holding her in your lap, and I, I'm not saying I approve of that. I think it's an interesting idea, but but uh, but but the idea is you're teaching her that this is not a situation that will change. It's not about her being sad. It's about acceptance. Yeah. Right. Well, it's about acceptance, and it's about understanding that in this world, in the world that she lives in, there are people who are going to make decisions that she that where she isn't going to be consulted necessarily right and that is a thing that that the argument against is that it disempowers her but i want to be perfectly clear at least in my clan that total empowerment is not what i'm what i'm after in the case of a (laughs) two-year-old like empowerment is a thing that you earn over time as you overcome obstacles learn and accomplish things you become empowered empowerment right. is not a thing that you are born with and that that the parents job is to get out of the way of empowerment is a thing that you earn and some of that is that you become empowered by knowing that you were disempowered or that you were that there were tremendous limits on what you were able to do at a, as a young person so I mean, there are uh, some of the shrieking that's happening. Some of the shrieking that necessitates that I carry a saber while I do this stuff is around this idea that I am that somehow by holding her on my lap, I am I am either being a bully or I'm teaching her that she doesn't have autonomy or all these other questions. And I'm like, the first of all, the 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 thing in my family that I'm not worried about is that she grows up with a sense of autonomy. You know what I mean? I'm not I am not particularly worried that 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 she will be the first Roderick Rochester in the history of time that isn't a total like basically a human monster. Right. We are we are we are a threat to to human culture, not 
you know, not a not a cog in it. That's not something you uh, get or don't get in an afternoon on Daddy's lap. Yeah, she's not. You know, she is not going to be. It's any like of that. she won't have blonde hair or something. <laughs> so, but all the but all these ideas that you know that a two year old is learning these unconscious. Um, the, 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 this idea that she's not going to be that she's not going to feel capable right because her because her father periodically uh, made, made her know, prepare for a Gestapo yeah, search institutes a regime in which she will be that in which she will survive a holocaust <laughs> I, I do not accept this logic <laughs> if, she, if, if anybody in this family is, because I had a dream the other night uh, after this terrible uh, hurricane in New York, I had a dream the other night that I was in a car that went off a bridge into a river, and the car filled up with water, and the baby was in the car with me. And I had to, I had to wait for the car to sink in order to open the door, and then swim around, get the baby out of her car seat underwater, and then get to the surface of what then became a raging torrent i was then in a raging river and i had to have the baby hold on to me as i swam in what became a uh boundaryless sea there was then there was no shore and i'm swimming in this torrent and there's no shore and there's nothing to hold on to and i'm in my dream trying to navigate the, and i'm not a super great swimmer either trying to figure out a way that i can make us buoyant enough to float where she can ride on my chest as I'm, you know, floating on my back and we're being carried in this flood, raging flood water. And this was not a good dream. This was a terrifying dream, but it reinforced to me that there are times when baby needs to hold on to daddy and shut the fuck up. <laughs> and in, and I can see my daughter in this situation as we're floating down this, this deluge and she is on my, she's on my chest, and I am trying to keep my head above water. Then she starts saying, "Down, down, <laughs> daddy, down." And that must make you redouble your your uh, your saber and uh, I, rattling. And in this, in the in the case of being in the deluge, I would have to say, "No, honey, you're just going to sit on daddy's chest right now." And and you know what? If she grows up with that, which I'm certain that she will, when she becomes a strong swimmer. You know, what? I think we run into the uh, Harry Chapin scenario. I think she says to you, no. Yeah. I'm right. a strong swimmer. You will hold on to me. And, and then you will be happily, lovingly the beta dog for that situation. Yeah, unless that, you can learn to swim better. That will be the moment. And the, the thing is... And in, they'll know at, you've succeeded. In every child's life, there is the moment where they say, no, Dad. I am no longer on your... I am no longer sitting on your lap. And that is the moment when it is it is incumbent upon me to say... You're right, and now I am old. <laughs> and we the have, cats in the cradle, cradle and the silver spoon. We have to fight each other. <laughs>